Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. want to say welcome once again. So grateful that you are worshiping with us. If you're uh, worshiping online, uh, we are thankful that you're here too. Uh, as we said before, this is Palm Sunday in our liturgical calendar. It's the day where Jesus walked into Jer- or rode into Jerusalem and the people gathered around and they cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna was both a declaration, God, you save, and it was a, a prayer, God, save. And so we find ourselves today in sort of this this liminal space that we're invited into by Palm Sunday. We are anticipating next week where we get the chance to remind ourselves that Christ has risen and he has what? Risen indeed, right. I didn't invite you once again to invite somebody to come with you, grab one of these uh, promos that are in our lobby right after the service, put a bunch of them in your purse or in your wallet and invite people to come with you as next week we remember the fact that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and evil. But today we remember that sin, death, and evil are still a part of our lives, aren't they? Last Sunday evening, um, uh, the first Sunday of every month, we have what we call family dinner right after our 5 p.m. service. And so we invite everybody who's a part of that service to come over to the cafe for dinner. And during that time, we spend some time doing what we call a dinner liturgy at our tables and then together as a whole group. And so last week I was leading our time together as a whole group. One of the questions we ask is, how have you seen God's fingerprints in your life over this last month? And people shared and The next question we ask is, um, what are you lamenting right now? What are some things that are just a struggle for you right now? And there was a a moment of silence. And as a a pastor, sometimes you want to just jump in and fill that void, right? But I did a good job. I just let it sit there. (laughs) And uh, a hand went up in the air a bit sheepishly. And a gentleman shared that a few weeks ago, his, his brother was found murdered. We stopped and we prayed. Um, a, a woman raised her hand and said, uh, my brother-in-law just, I think it was yesterday, she said, was found in his car dead. He had battled addiction for months, just couldn't shake it. And it was this reminder for me that we're all fighting a battle, aren't we? <laughs> in our families, in our own lives, that there are things going on that are really, really painful and really, really hard. And you zoom out a little bit and you can see around the globe, whether it's a conflict in Ukraine or a genocide in China, that there are things going on all around our globe that sort of make us look back up to heaven and go, God, what are you, what are you doing in the midst of all this? Am I, am I alone in that? Or sometimes my question back to God is, is where are you? Because the truth is, and I think that, that Wesley on The Princess Bride captured it so well, life is pain, Highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. It's painful, isn't it? Or maybe you're more comfortable with the words of Jesus. Fair enough. Here's the way Jesus says it. In this world, you will, not might, but will have what? Trouble or tribulation. He goes, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging and certainly take heart because I have overcome the world. But so much of our lives is lived in the midst of trouble. Can I get an Amen. And one of the questions we often wrestle with is where is God in the midst of the pain? Or maybe just maybe we zoom out a little bit further and ask the question, God, why do you allow the pain to exist at all? What's the deal? 
and what's the plan? In a national survey that a company did a number of years ago, they asked this question, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And people's response was, if I could ask God one question, it would be, why is there suffering in the world? See, the atheists attempt to answer that question and see, see, we told you, the fact that there's suffering in the world disproves the existence of God. In fact, that argument is considered to be the rock of atheism. It's sort of the, the foundational core of atheism in so many ways. I think it's best captured by 18th century Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, who wrote, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? <laughs> then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? <laughs> well, then why is there evil? Uh, the argument essentially says if God is all powerful and all good, then why in the world is there evil in our world? Have you ever wondered the same thing? God, what's going on? on here. And the atheist would say, no, that, that evil and that suffering uh, means that there is, in fact, proves that there is no God. Now, I want to remind you of something we said last week. The fact that there is evil and suffering in the world does not disprove the existence of God. It only disproves the existence of God, a, of a God who prevents all evil and suffering. That's all it disproves. It does not disprove God. So let me point out just a few things as we jump into our time of study this morning. We're going to wrestle with that question. God, where are you when? Well, let me start with this. If Christianity and evil were unable to coexist, that, that there's evil in our world and that what the scriptures teach about Jesus is true. If those two things were not able to coexist, then Christianity would have never survived the first three centuries. You understand that? That people for the first 300 years of following Jesus experienced more evil, more pain, and more suffering than we could probably ever imagine. I mean, they saw people that they loved and knew because they followed Jesus put on Roman crosses and killed for their faith. They saw people covered in tar and lit on fire to light up the Caesar's night parties. They saw people put in um, coliseums and torn apart by wild animals because of their faith in Jesus. And yet they held true to what the scriptures taught. You see, as followers of Jesus, we have a history of being able to say, no, 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 evil and suffering do not disprove God. God is at work even in the midst of the pain and the suffering. But we often ask the question, how? And God, what does it look like in our lives for you to be at work in the midst of the struggles? And my hope is that our time in the scriptures today would cause something in you to rise again in the pain that you may be walking through right now. If you have your Bible, will you open with me to John chapter 11? John chapter 11, last week we left off on verse 16. And in it we saw, uh, we read a story about two women who knew Jesus and whom Jesus loved very much. He loved their family. Their brother was sick. They sent word to Jesus, our brother's sick. And the implication was, will you come and will you heal him and will you restore him? And Jesus did what nobody expected him to do. He waited two more days. And last week we saw that 
Disappointment in God doesn't reveal a failure of God. It actually reveals a faulty expectation that we had of God. God, we thought that because you loved us, you were going to come through on our timeline. We thought that you were going to do the things that we would do if we were expressing love to someone. And what we found out last week is that God interacts in ways that we don't often expect, right? Expect. And we're going to see the continuation of that today. It's been a few days have passed in the story. And Jesus finally begins to make his way to Bethany. And we're going to pick up the story when he starts to walk into the town in verse 17. Are you there? Here we go. Verse 17. It says, now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, or sorry, been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And I just want you to have this picture in your mind of what's going on. You have one sister, Martha, who may be a little bit frantic, Um, she's certainly processing this grief and this pain externally. So she hears Jesus is coming to town and she's like, I'm going to go meet him on the road. Right. And then you have the other sister, sister Mary, who hears the exact same thing. And she just stays seated. She's more of an internal processor. They stay true to their personalities that we see in Luke chapter 10. Remember when Jesus comes to their house, we see Martha frantic, busy, trying to get the house ready, trying to get the meal ready. And we see Mary sitting at Jesus's feet. Their personalities show up once again. And I point that out only to make the statement that oftentimes we expect that other people should grieve in the exact same way that we do. If you're grieving, here's what it looks like. It looks like you are outwardly expressing it. Or maybe, maybe, if you're grieving, it looks like you are processing it internally. And it's great to know how you often process grief because the people around you may be grieving, but they may not be processing it in the exact same way. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus meets everybody in this story in their grief. He doesn't call them to change the way that they're grieving. So Martha goes out and she meets him on the road and she blurts out what she's been thinking for days. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I love this, this tension that Martha invites us into. God, if you'd been here, Jesus, if you had shown up, this would have been different. And it's this frustration with God that I think is actually a revelation of Martha's faith. See, I've often thought that frustration with God and faith are in opposition to each other, but I actually think they're dance partners. I think that when you express frustration with God, you are implicitly also saying, God, I have faith in you. I believe that you could have. I believe that if you had shown up, things could have gone differently. I am frustrated, not in spite of my faith, but precisely because of my faith. See, I think frustration with God is actually a sign of deep faith. And Martha displays that. Now, Jesus and Martha have a conversation about resurrection, which we will, for maybe obvious 
reasons talk about next week. But the conversation goes on and Jesus asks Martha to go and to get her sister. Verse 30, I'm sorry, verse uh, 28 says this. And when she'd said this, she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. I love this, don't you? Like Jesus says, uh, Martha, I don't want Mary to just be in her home. I, I don't want her to just be in her head, in her heart. I, 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 wanna, I wanna interact with her too. Will you, will you go get her? And when she heard this, she rose. That, that word rose is also translated at times resurrection. Mary has her, her own resurrection of sorts. And she quickly went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And while the scriptures don't give us a systematic explanation of why evil and suffering exist in the world, I believe that in this story, in this narrative, in this event, we get an answer to the way that God responds to evil and pain and suffering in the world. Because what does Jesus do? He, he doesn't stay distant Sure, he waits longer than they would have wanted, but eventually he makes that 20 to 25 mile journey from east of the Jordan to Bethany and he shows up with this family and he enters into their pain and he looks them in the eyes and he begins to minister to them directly. See, Jesus answers, whoops, Jesus answers the problem of evil by entering our pain. Jesus answers the problem of evil by entering our pain, not just by healing our hurt from a long distance. Now, I'm not sure that that's always the answer that we're looking for when it comes to the problem of evil and suffering in our own lives. I mean, because oftentimes we will say back to God, God, why? Why, why am I walking through this? God, why did you allow this? God, why is this happening? But I think if we were to zoom back far enough from the pain and suffering that we've walked through in the world, and we, were to, and we were to sort of imagine that God gave us a really clear answer for the why, I think we might all agree that having an answer for the why doesn't always help the turbulation that's going on in our heart. I mean, think about the deepest questions you have of God about pain and suffering. If you knew why you walked through those things intellectually, would it really be what you longed for and would it really be what you need? No, I think we might agree that in the midst of pain and suffering, we don't often need an answer. What we need is an arm around us. We don't just need to know why we're walking through it, but we need to know that there's somebody walking through it with us. Friends, this is the very reason for the incarnation. God doesn't just send a message. He becomes the messenger but because, because he knows we don't just need information. We need affection. We need to know that he's with us in the midst of it. Um, just this week, I saw uh, in Denmark, they're doing this experiment that they have libraries just like we do, but they are starting what they call a human library. And instead of going to a library and checking out a book, you can go to a library and check out a person. <laughs> Have a conversation with them about their life, about their experiences, about what they've walked through. And I think they're hitting on something transcendent about what it means to be 
human that when somebody shows up face to face, the issues start to change, don't they? The problems start to change, not because we know all the answers, but because there's somebody walking through it with us. See, um, on the worst night of my life, it was July 4th, 2005. <clears throat> I had held one of my high school students in my hands and my arms as he passed away, took his very last breath. And I'd driven home from the mountains in silence, not talking to anybody. And I had all these thoughts going on. God, where were you? God, why? God, I don't get it. I believe that, just like Martha, right? I believe you could have done something and you didn't. And I finally got home to my house at about 11 o'clock. My wife and I sitting there, the silence deafening. And my doorbell rang. And I went to my door and two of my best friends in the world were there. And they came in and they sat with us. I remember them sitting on the floor against the wall in our living room. And you know what? I don't remember one word they said. No, I don't remember anything they said. But to the, till the day I die, I will remember that they sat with us. And what I want you to hear today is that Jesus does the exact same thing with you. Look at the way that this plays out in this passage. It says this in verse 33, that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. When Jesus, say it with me, Emmanuel Faith, saw her. I love this, that Jesus doesn't come into Bethany sort of on a war path where he just knows that there's a problem that he has got to solve, right? I can remember when I was uh, first married, Kelly would come home from work with a problem that she was walking through and I would come up with 10 really good ideas of what she could do in response to that problem. And it may be shocking to you that that's not what she was looking for, right? And over the course of time, I've learned that, that no, 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 it's about seeing the person, not just seeing the problem. And I don't know about you, but I love that Jesus doesn't just see the problem, but he sees the person. Can I get an Amen. That when there's a crowd of people who have gathered up on the hillside, he has compassion on them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And the scriptures say he saw them. When there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years who reaches out to touch the tassel of his garment, he turns around and he sees her. He doesn't just see the problem. He sees the person. And what I want us to hear today is in the midst of all the questions we have about evil and sorrow and suffering in our world, we can be confident that he sees our sorrow. He sees our sorrow. This is one of my favorite characteristics of God right now. In fact, did you know that the very first time somebody looks back up to the heavens and names God in the scriptures, God is named Elroy. In Hebrew, that means the God who, and he guesses, sees. And he's named this by Hagar, who happens to be an Egyptian slave woman who was taken in by Abraham and then cast out to live in the wilderness. She's destitute, she's broken, and God in that moment of her life sees her there. And here's the interaction that they have. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. You are Elroy. For she said, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Some of you are here today 
and you're looking back up at God and you're saying, do you care? Do you see? Do you know what I'm walking through? And what Hagar shows us and what Jesus shows us is that the God of the universe, the one who calls out all the stars by name each and every single night, the creator of it all is invested and attentive to your life, to your pain, to your sorrow. I love this about Jesus, but if we're gonna be people who walk in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, we cannot just simply affirm that God is a God who sees. I think we have to say, God, make us people who see also. I love the way that the apostle Paul put it to the church. He said, essentially to the church in Corinth, the gospel gives you the power to see people differently. Did you know that? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16, he says this. So from now on, therefore we regard, or we see no one according to the flesh. Some translations will say, we see no one from a worldly point of view. Even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. The, the gospel gives you the power to see people around you differently. Now, if we're gonna lean into that, I, I think it means a few things for us. Let me, give you, let me give you three things that I think it means for us so that we need to lean into. If we're gonna see people, we've gotta make time for people, don't we? We live in such a fast-paced, busy world even just this last week, I was um, going to pick up some sandwiches from Jersey Mike's and then go to a baseball game, my, my kid's baseball game. And I'd ordered them online and I got there right when they were supposed to be ready. And I waited another 15 minutes until I had those sandwiches in my hand. And I can tell you the whole time, I did not see people. <laughs> I saw a problem. I was inconvenienced. Right? I wasn't being taken care of. I didn't get my needs met. And, I, um, and then I went and I started preparing for this message. And I went, Lord, help me. <laughs> Forgive me and help me. How often do I see people as an inconvenience to getting to where I really want to go? Maybe you do the same thing. So I, and we've got to slow down if we're going to see people. But secondly, secondly, we don't just need to slow down if we're going to see people. I think we have to engage the uncomfortable. See, because Jesus could have healed from a distance. He did that with a centurion servant, healed long distance. Jesus could have stayed east of the Jordan and yelled out, Lazarus, rise up. And you know what would have happened? Lazarus would have walked out of that grave. But he shows up and he enters the mess. And I wonder for us if we want to do some long distance ministry, but we are unwilling to enter into the pain and the struggles of real people's lives. That maybe we avoid the uncomfortable, the situations that we'd rather not engage with, the people that are struggling with their sexual identity, the people who are wrestling with mental health issues, the people that are walking through relational strife and we go, oh gosh, God, I just wish that that were somebody else's issue to solve or somebody else's problem to step into. And I think that sometimes it would help us to step back far enough to remember that sometimes the most uncomfortable situations in our life are the very invitations that Jesus is giving us to step into. So what would that look like for you to start to step in? And then finally, I think seeing people requires, it demands that we resist labeling people because it's easy for us to label somebody by their problem. But if that happens, we never see the person behind the problem. 
And so what if we intentionally said, I can either see people or I can label people, but I cannot do both. So I wanna hear the story. I wanna hear the person behind the problem. And maybe just maybe when you hear their story, you might think to yourself, if I had walked through the same thing they've walked through, if I'd grown up in the same way they'd grown up, if I were in the same position they were in, maybe I'd believe or do exactly what they're doing. And all of that is a part of seeing, seeing, which is exactly what Jesus does. But he doesn't stop there, verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus, what? Wept. How many of you have memorized that verse? <laughs> it's the shortest verse in the Bible. I often wonder when, when they were deciding where the verse markers went, I wonder how much somebody had to fight for these two words to be considered one verse. No, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it. It needs to stand alone. It needs to stand alone because it's so important, but we don't have any other verses in the Bible that are just two words. Right? I, I get it. But the shortest verse in the world may create a mountain of theology. I mean, what would be absent if we didn't know that Jesus wept with us? We might think that God were present, but disconnected. Present, but stoic. We might think that God were akin to um, Jerry Seinfeld, one of his uh, girlfriends on the show Seinfeld, where Jerry was a comedian and um, really funny, and he was dating this girl at one point in time who didn't laugh at any of his jokes. And he took it personally. And at one conversation during dinner, he made this really, really funny quip. And she looks back at him with deadpan stoicism and says, that's really funny. <laughs> and I wonder if some of us view God in the same way. It's really sad. Well, that's disappointing. That must be frustrating but with a deadpan stoicism that a Greek philosopher might be proud of. No, 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 Jesus reflects the character and nature of God, that all throughout the scriptures, we see that God is an emotional being. He gets angry, gets jealous, he's joyful, he's loving, He's compassionate and so many other emotions. And here we see in John chapter 11 that he empathizes with our anguish. He empathizes with our anguish. But I don't know about you, but I, I have this like just nagging question in the back of my mind. Like, are the tears real? I mean, Jesus knows that in a few minutes he's gonna say, Lazarus, rise up and he's gonna walk out of the grave. So, I mean, is, is Jesus just giving us some sort of divine theater? Is he uh, positioning himself for an Oscar nomination? I mean, what, what in the world is going on here? Are the tears real or are they just simply orchestrated? Well, the fact that God has emotion at all reminds us that even though he knows the, the beginning from the end and everything in between, he enters into our moment to weep with us and to grieve with us and to really see us in the moment. The fact that he knows the end of the story does not prevent him from meeting us in the middle. 
And the truth of the matter is, friends, we live in the middle of John chapter 11. And so Jesus knows the way it's going to all work out in the end, doesn't he? So if our line of reasoning is, well, Jesus, you're just going to raise him in two minutes, so why weep? Couldn't we take that same line of reasoning with everything going on in our life? God, you know how it's going to all work out, so who cares about the middle, right? No, 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 no. God enters into the moment. He enters into time and space. He looks us in the eye, and he weeps with us. It's the same thing that a good parent does when their kids are hurting. Right? A good parent, when their teenager comes to them with a broken heart, or not having made the sports team, or having a friend that stabbed him in the back, a good parent doesn't say, you know, in a few years, you're not gonna really worry about this. No, no big deal, it's all gonna work out in the end. No, a good parent recognizes that puppy love is love to puppies, and they enter in, right? They enter in. It's the exact same thing that God does with you. He enters in. He says, I see the pain. And I feel it. I feel it. I don't just know it. And I don't just observe it. But I'm allowing it to prick my heart. We often will say things like, um, we'll often pray things like, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Which is a great prayer. But what if it's equally as true that what breaks your heart breaks his? What if he enters in that low to really see and to really feel? And it's in this way that Jesus doesn't just give us a whole new picture of what it means to be God, but he paints a whole new picture of what it means to be human, what it means to be a man. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate man. And yet he's publicly weeping over the pain and the sorrow of death. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. I'm more of a Mary type. I can stuff it with the best of them. I can sort of ignore it and hope it'll go away. The thing is, it doesn't go away. Can I get an amen? I was meeting with my counselor just this last week and she leaned in and looked at me and said, um, Ryan, you, you, need to, you need to weep over some of the things that you've walked through. You need, you need to cry over him. And I wanted to say, I'm done. <laughs> I, I've done that. Been there, done that. But what I think she saw was it in me that it's just something locked up, right? I'll deal with that on my own or I'll try to work my way through it or I'll live in my head and I'll rationalize why everything's okay. And what she was saying to me is, no, 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 no. You need to do exactly what Jesus does with the people in John chapter 11. You need to weep over it. And did you know, by the way, that in a study just released in 2021 by Harvard Medical Review, that crying is actually a part of the way that we heal. It's a way that God works in us to restore us to wholeness. It, do, it doesn't happen. We don't get there without it. And, and I don't just want to be the kind of church where we go, okay, God, we understand that you weep with us and that's really good. And I believe that it is, but I want to be the kind of church where we say to one another, we will weep with each other. We will enter in with each other. We will feel and empathize with, with each other. It's exactly what Paul called the church in Rome to do. Rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep, weep with those who weep. 
Uh, Jesus is practicing exactly what he preached and he's holding out the invitation to us too to be deeply connected to one another and all that we're going through so that our hearts and our lives will be intertwined in such a way that we can say to one another, when you hurt, I genuinely hurt. One of the ways that we're doing that here at Emmanuel Faith is through our care and counseling department. And um, they're just doing such a great job right now. They've uh, created this care team of people in our church body who care for those in our church body. It's all lay led where people show up and minister one to another. And I love what Jesus is doing through this. And I just want you to hear a little bit of their story. This opportunity opened up and it sounded like something I might be able to do. By and large, these people are thrilled to have you come. They want to have you come back. Some of them want you to pray with them. Others just want to chat. I like to talk. I like to visit with people. So uh, I thought this would be a good fit for me and, and hopefully for Doris too. It's been a good give-take relationship and every time I come out of visiting with him, I'm happy. And it makes me feel good to go spend some time with him. Well, in the beginning, we didn't talk too much. I delivered the, the bulletin and the CD, but as time went on, we visited more and more. Well, when I hear Jesus finds us in the weeping, actually is, is that's where I find these people. At their very lowest, where they're weak, they're um, not in control of their life. I think people who are in crisis have a real need to connect with their church. Jesus finds us at our lowest times, most kinds, and I feel that that's when I should be there. Well, I'd say it's a blessing. Even though there's a sadness, there's also um, a joy in the Lord. Well, I think seeing people and talking with people in crises and hearing their stories, they want to talk, and just to sit and listen is in itself a blessing. So it's really blessed me to be able to just be there for them. I love that. And maybe you're saying, uh, I'd love to be a part of a team like that, or gosh, I would really love somebody to walk with me in the midst of the pain and suffering. Uh, they have a, the care team has a booth that's set up on the north side of uh, the exits and would invite you to uh, go there if you're here in person. If you're online, you can reach out uh, via our website and we can get you connected. But we want to be the kind of church that weeps with those who weep and mourns with those who mourn and rejoices with those who rejoice. Amen? Amen. Listen to the way that the story ends. Verse 33, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And then if you scoot down to verse 38, it says, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was against it. This word deeply moved, if you look down, there's probably a little note at the end of the page in your Bible. It says it could be translated was indignant. I think that's probably a better translation of the Greek that, that Jesus was angry when he walks up to Lazarus's tomb. He's, he's upset, he's, he's mad. Some of the um, ways that that word is used is like of a horse that just goes like, <laughs> right? And Jesus walking up to the tomb is expressing this kind of deep-seated anger. And we know that Jesus gets angry uh, throughout the gospels, right? I mean, we see that Jesus gets angry when religious leaders take advantage of people. He sees that, we see him get angry when the kids are pushed to the sidelines. We see that Jesus gets angry when the religious Pharisees create all sorts of judgmental rules that keep people away from encountering God. But in this case, I think his anger is different than all those other cases. In this case, I believe that Jesus is angry at the way that sin and death and evil 
have marred God's good creation. In fact, Charles Spurgeon would say it like this. He now stood face to face with the last enemy, death. He saw what sin had done in destroying life and even in corrupting the fair handiwork of God in the human body. He marked also the share which Satan had in all of this and his indignation was aroused. Yea, his whole nature was stirred. And so I just want you to close your mind. I want you to, or close your, close your mind. Open your mind, close your eyes. And I want you to have that scene in your mind, Jesus walking up to this tomb and getting angry. I mean, Jesus is one of only three people who's ever walked the face of the earth that knows what God's original design looks like. He alone understands how deeply marred God's good creation truly is. And when he walks up to the tomb, he is angry over all that sin and evil and death have stolen from his people that he loves. He is indignant at the way that shalom has been fractured and the great enemy of death has gripped even his dearest friends. And here's what we see, not only that Jesus sees, not only that he weeps, but also that he gets angry. He gets angry over death. See, we know that God has wrath in response to our sin. The scripture is really clear about that. But here we see that he also has wrath against sin itself. He has a response of anger or wrath against the effects of sin in the lives of people like you and me that he deeply loves. And we might say it like this. Death is what we deserve because of sin, but it's never what God desires. It may be what we deserve because of sin, it is, but it's not what God desires. And so friends, while we may not have a clean systematic explanation in the scriptures of exactly why evil, God allows evil and suffering to exist, I believe that in this story, we have God's answer to evil and suffering. He sees, he weeps, and he gets angry. In fact, I love the way that this passage ends in verse 36. It says this, the Jews said, see how he loved him. So his, his seeing, his weeping and his anger, their response is, wow, he really loved Lazarus. He really loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man also and kept this man from dying? <laughs> Don't you love that? See how he loved him? Yeah, but did he really love him? If he really loved him, he could have done something. And here's where we see that not, God not only sees us in our suffering, not only weeps with us in our suffering, but could he have done something about it? What's the answer? Yes. Did he do something about it? Yes, absolutely, because God not only steps into our suffering and he not only sees our suffering, he not only weeps with us, but he eventually dies for us. He takes the very punishment and penalty of sin on his own shoulders, he buries it in the ground and he walks out with new life in his hands. Friends, so we can be confident that regardless of what suffering and what pain we walk through, that suffering is never the end of the story. Can I get an amen? That if we're still suffering, we are not at the end because one day 
He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things will pass away and behold, the new will come. Jesus steps into suffering. He sees it, he weeps with us. But this poignant sort of comment at the end, couldn't he have done something about it? Sort of stands to tease us to imagine Easter next week where he definitively once and for all does something about it. He redeems it from the inside out. And I don't know what you're walking through today. And I don't know what kind of pain and what kind of sorrow has been a part of your story in your life, but I want you to know a few things. Number one, God sees you exactly where you are right now. Exactly where you are, he sees you. Number two, I think he just wants to kneel down right in front of you and say, I weep with you too. I weep with you. And then finally, I think he would wanna put his arm around you and say, but this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story. So Jesus, in the midst of, of a world that is filled with, with heartbreak and joy, that's filled with frustration and, and celebration, Give us eyes to see your fingerprints at work. Give us a heart that's attentive to your spirit's prompting and speaking. God, I pray that even today, as we maybe this afternoon think back on some of those moments in our life that were, were dark and painful, that Jesus, you would give us a, a vision of you weeping with us. We don't really need an answer to why it happened, but we need to feel your arms around us. And Lord, thank you that we can stand here today knowing what we get to celebrate next week. Suffering's never the end of the story. But in the middle of it, would you minister to us? Would you meet us, see us, weep with us and point us to the end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.